Robert Jeffress included in his commentary on some of the Proverbs an interesting history of a popular phrase we often use today, although translated from Chinese into English. Evidently, a member, he wrote, of, a royal, of the royal orchestra in China, uh, one of the members was evidently an imposter. In fact, um, he had evidently talked his way into playing in the orchestra, although he had no musical training whatsoever. Whenever this massive orchestra would practice or perform, he would simply hold the flute against his lips and pretend to play. For some time, he got away with it, enjoying the prestige of being in the orchestra as well as receiving a handsome salary. One day, however, the emperor requested that each member of the orchestra come to the palace and perform one solo piece for him as he intended to enjoy several days of of music. The flautist knew that in a matter of hours he would be discovered, his family shamed, he would more than likely be executed for fraud. So he feigned illness, but the court physician found nothing wrong with him. On his appointed day, an hour to perform approached. He took his own life rather than stand before the emperor and be exposed as a thief and an imposter. And out of that event came the phrase, he refused to face the music. We use that phrase today to talk about somebody who refuses to be accountable, don't we? To, To face his just desserts, to stand up and own up to what he or she really is. They refuse to face, as it were, the music. You study the book of Proverbs for very long and you get the distinct impression that the emperor of heaven has called each of us in for a personal evaluation. It doesn't do any good to feign illness. Uh, There's no hiding our performance. In fact, it's impossible to escape him even in death. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul was so passionate about his development and performance for the glory of God when he wrote, It is my ambition to be pleasing to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. The hard truth is we're, we're often not very pleasing to our Lord and we are in constant need of challenge and and correction. And one of the greatest dangers in, in, to the Christian growing up in Christ is the danger of believing that we already have, that we have arrived, we have attained. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote these important words when he himself said, I haven't attained yet. It, it isn't that I'm perfect, literally, I'm mature, but I press on, I keep moving. Philippians chapter 3, verse. 12. It's dangerous to believe that, that we've arrived. More than likely, you don't feel that way. That's why it's a good thing, however, to face uh, the music, the evaluation of Scripture as it exposes us for not only who we are, and, but where we should grow and what we should change or do. If you turn to Proverbs 6, that's one of those passages that sort of calls us in before the personal encounter with the emperor of of heaven. It's a great text, and at first it might not seem that it has our name written on it, but I think as you read through this passage, you'll see that, that it is our own personal evaluation at hand. Look with me at verse 16 of Proverbs chapter 6. 
By the way, I know that chapter is in the Bible. Okay, you've got that. How many of you looked for Ruth chapter 5? Oh, I did too. I was going, when J. Vernon McGee said that, I was doing everything I could to find chapter (laughs) 5. Here are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. This is uh, one of those passages where we're not only having to appear before the divine or the heavenly emperor, but it's almost like getting a a physical from the divine physician. He takes a look at our body. Did you notice how he references uh, our eyes, uh, the health of our heart, the condition of our tongue, the use of our, our hands, and even our feet? He just brings us in and checks us all out. How many of you enjoy getting a physical? Isn't that a delight? Oh, joy, oh, delight. It's that time of year again where I've got to call and make a a scheduled appointment with the doctor to get a physical, and I'm going to get poked and prodded and pushed and weighed. (laughs) And weighed. You know, I, I can, you can always default though, because you're, you're wearing your clothes and your shoes, right? It's my shoes. <laughs> I can tell you that every year my shoes are weighing more and more when I go and see the, the doctor, but that's only after you've had to sit out in the waiting room for an hour or two, right? Reading magazines, I would never give personal money to purchase. In fact, what little I know about Oprah, I owe to doctors and dentists and it's more than I want to know. Well, then eventually, you know, you get checked out and then they tell you to go to the lab to have your blood drawn. That's my favorite part. Like just thinking about it, I don't know about you, but I'm queasy and my palms get sweaty and, and I give her my arm, that cruel barbaric nurse, and I look this way and I grit my teeth and she fills hundreds of vials of blood <laughs> that will weaken me for the rest of my life. And I'm not exaggerating. But this is where danger to our health is exposed, and it is very important, isn't it? The divine physician, in in a text like this, pokes and prods and weighs. He draws blood. You see, this is where danger to our spirit is exposed. There are these unmistakable passages that kind of hook us and bring us in for a close inspection. Now, mind you, uh, Solomon has collected these proverbs for those who are seeking the hidden treasures of wisdom. The world will never stop and read texts like that. Who cares if my eyes are haughty? Who cares if I tell a lie every once in a while? I don't. Well, they have no spirit to discern the truth, for these things are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Our divine physician will tell us the truth. Now, before we we look at each of of these parts examined, why, why a list of seven? Let me give you four reasons why. 
First of all, it aids the believer with his memory. Why, why does he say six, yea, no, uh, seven? Well, I think it aids the believer in, in our own memory, condensing it. These are certainly categorical sins. You can shove a lot underneath these. But it helps you to, to get a list, small list. I know my wife says, honey, would you stop by the grocery store on the way home? I, I want you to pick up a couple of things. Now, if it's a couple, a couple to me is how many? Two. So if it gets to three or four, she knows, honey, write it down. You need to go ahead and write this down because she knows when it gets past one, two, three, I'm going to come home with things that she never imagined. Um, white powdered sugar donuts and diet granola. They, they, they equal one another out in my mind. But I'll come home with all kinds of things. So I have a list. This is one of those things that the... That the, that the poet knew we could sort of tuck in our shirt. It's a short list and it aids our memory. Just, I want you to know there are seven sins God hates. Aids the memory. It also encourages the believer, not only with his memory, but it encourages the believer by its brevity. I mean, certainly the Lord hates all sin, right? All sin is equally hated by God. But to summarize it and sort of pare it down to, to these sins, a short list of six, it, it actually encourages us. Imagine if the text said, there are 6,000 things the Lord hates. 7,000 are an abomination to him. You'd go, oh no, 7,000. Where do I begin? So it's encouraging to know the list is short. Isn't it? Here's seven for starters. The list aids the believer with his memory. It encourages the believer by its brevity. Thirdly, this list surprises the believer with its severity. I said four, there are only three. These seven, Solomon writes, the Lord hates. The Lord despises these actions and attitudes. In fact, he says, these are abominations to him. That Hebrew word refers to things that are morally repulsive, reprehensible. These are abominations. So does this mean that the Lord considers these seven sins more repulsive, uh, more reprehensible than other sins? No, for all sin is abomination to the Lord. In fact, the text says these six things, yea, seven is actually a Hebrew expression that implies the list is not exhaustive. It's kind of like saying there are four, no five, no six. No, there are, there are seven. It's not exhaustive. Sin is sin. But these in the list are surprising to me. See, among these seven are are sins you think that you could easily sweep under the rug. These are a far cry from the nasty nine and the dirty dozen, right? I mean, look at the list. We understand the one about murder, last part of verse 17. But you mean to tell me that God hates a haughty look as much as he hates murder? You mean to tell me that, that a lie is as bad as murder? What does this do for the average person who, who says, you know, thinks they're going to heaven because they haven't killed anybody? You going to heaven? Well, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I've never killed anybody. Well, you look at this list, you listen to the physician's report, 
And you discover in the report that God hates murder and lying and divisiveness and arrogance equally. So we, we need to face the music together. This is what God has to say. These are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are morally repulsive to him. He begins in the next verse with the eyes, a proud look, haughty eyes. In our uh, vernacular, we might, we might say this is somebody who looks down their nose at everybody else. I'm going to give you seven different kinds of spirits or attitudes. This would be the spirit of, of disdain, a disdainful spirit or attitude. They literally disdain other people. And since the eyes of uh, a person's body, we're told, are the mirror of the soul, this means that a haughty look is actually betraying a haughty spirit, a haughty heart, a disdainful heart and spirit toward others. They look at people like they are better than other people because they really believe they are better than other people. This is nothing less than the attitude of Satan himself who disdained the triune God, believing he was worthy of God's own throne. So the person that views with arrogance others is reflecting the spirit of Satan and that spirit will never bring Christ glory. It will bring Christ dishonor and that's why God hates it. The Scottish preacher James Denny said, no man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. In other words, you can't be impressed with Christ and at the same time be impressed, be impressed with yourself. You can't focus your attention on him and at the same time focus your attention on you. The phrase refers to someone who is conceited, someone who is caught up with his own reflection. And their favorite topic of conversation is who? Themselves. I appreciated this response when several decades ago, somebody asked Walt Disney what it was like to be a celebrity. He was literally known just about around the world. And he said, well, it, it feels fine when it helps to get a good seat for a football game. It's nice to be a celebrity. But it never helped me to make a good film or command the obedience of my daughter. In fact, it doesn't even seem to keep fleas off our dog. And if being a celebrity doesn't give me an advantage over a couple of fleas, there can't be much to it. That good? I wonder then about the church. Eugene Peterson, the author of the paraphrase, the message, once remarked that the church today is growing in its list of celebrities and declining in its list of saints. Solomon moves from this spirit to another one. We'll call this the disdainful uh, spirit to the deceitful spirit. He moves now in verse 17 and says, the Lord not only hates haughty eyes, but he hates a lying tongue. This is a deceitful spirit. Again, uh, it's easy to, to find the model and the character of Satan who is called by Christ the father of what? The father of lies. In fact, whenever Satan speaks, 
He speaks lies and lying happens to be his native dialect, John 8, 44. Where on the other hand, Jesus Christ always speaks the truth for he is truth, John 14, 6. So the believer who is most like Christ and most unlike Satan is the believer who tells the truth. And over and over again, ransack the Proverbs on your own and discover how often Solomon challenges the believer to be honest. Chapter 4, verse 24 would be one, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Devious talk, what's that? That's more than just some big whopper of a lie. Devious talk could be manipulating the truth to cover your tracks. It could be flattering someone to get your way. It could be stretching the truth to fit your story and more. The Lord hates the disdainful spirit and the Lord hates the deceitful spirit. Third, he hates the destructive spirit. Spirit. Notice further as he examines not just the eyes and the tongue, but the hands. What is it about these set of hands? They shed innocent blood. Now, this is the one we would expect. Yeah, there you go. That's, that, that belongs on the list. God considers it morally reprehensible. And it is true. These are the inquisitors, the murderers, the fomenters of holocausts and genocides right now in several places in our world people are dying at the hands of murderers this is also the euthanasia proponent the abortionist this is the court and those that followed That order to remove water and food from a living, disabled woman named Terry Schiavo. This is for all those who adopt the message of Peter Singer, the bioethicist at Princeton, who said about uh, 16 months ago that killing both preborn and now he's moved to saying newborn children as well as legalizing the assistance of suicide, especially for the elderly, is acceptable within, quote, the best interests of the family. I'd hate to be in that family. I thought it was in their best interest to bump me off. He said in an interview I read off the World Net Daily just this week that there's going to be an upheaval in the concept of life and human rights with only a few hardcore, know-nothing, religious fundamentalists still protecting life as sacred. And so we do. Amen? He believes that killing a disabled newborn for up to 28 days after birth is acceptable. And Princeton actually pays his salary. Of course, he also believes that a man's life is not worth more than a cow. And he has a growing following. A guy came up to me and he said, Stephen... This week marks the seventh anniversary when you came to our home and prayed with us as my wife had delivered a baby boy with Down syndrome. And he said, I got to tell you, he said, "Um, this boy, Michael, has been an incredible joy and pleasure to our family. We are delighted with his presence, his sense of humor, his love. 
He said, however, we, we, we are still reeling from what a UNC professor said this past week. Did you see it in the end? No. And I said, no, I, I didn't see it. And so he emailed it to me. And I read it. A University of North Carolina professor of biology made the comment in class that he believes when a mother discovers her preborn child has Down syndrome, she should abort it. He said, it's, quote, the moral thing to do. No, it is a reprehensible thing to do. It is morally repulsive to do. And the word of God says, I hate that perspective. I hate the industry of death that determines who is valuable and worthy of life. And people unwittingly are deceived into following the God of this world who is bent on destruction. For he was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. He's called in Revelation 12, verse 3, the red dragon, given that name because of his thirst for the shedding of blood. He loves to kill the image of God. Because he cannot kill God, at least he will motivate and inspire the killing of human beings because we are uniquely created in the image of God and as sort of an indirect uh, slam at God. No wonder the Lord hates the disdainful, the deceitful, the destructive spirit. Solomon writes further in verse 18 how God hates the depraved spirit. The Lord hates a heart that devises Wicked plans. This text refers to those who are plotting to take advantage of of others. Those who literally create plans that help destroy the lives of others. Certainly those whose lives are destroyed are personally and directly responsible. But he, he places responsibility at those who plan those plans. This is the depraved heart conniving. Scheming, scamming, God hates. Let's turn this one around and challenge ourselves to plan things that will encourage and help others toward purity and integrity. It it is a world filled with with scammers and schemers, and they're going to steal your money, and they're going to steal your purity. They're going to steal your reputation. So let the church be an assembly that plans to enrich and encourage purity and enhance character and reputation. And when the sinner lies on his bed, Solomon said, he plans evil. So when you lie on your bed tonight and you pillow your head, plan something good. Plan something wholesome. Plan something healthy. Plan something helpful. For somebody else. Like Jim Elliott who prayed, God, allow my life to be a crossroads where people who meet me choose the right path. A few weeks ago, I read a devotional article by my favorite professor, Howard Hendricks, in which he wrote, not long ago, I lost one of my best friends, a dynamic woman, 86 years of age. The last time I saw her, it was at a rather boring reception. We were sitting there on eggshells looking all pious. And, and she walked in, saw me, and said, Well, Hendricks, I haven't seen you for a long time. What are the five best books you've read in the past year? She, has a way of, she had a way of changing a group's dynamics. Her philosophy was, let's not bore each other. Let's get into a discussion. And if we can't find anything to discuss, let's get into an argument. 
She was 83, he writes, on her last trip to the Holy Land. She went there with a group of NFL football players. He said, one of my most vivid memories of her was seeing her out in front of the bus yelling inside, come on guys, get with it. She died in her sleep. Her daughter told me that just before she died, she had written out her goals for the next 10 years. Wow. There's a heart devising and planning for good and godliness and impacting others as well for Christ. Solomon moves out of the feet. He informs us that the Lord hates feet that make haste to run to evil. These are wandering feet. These are straying feet. This is a reference, I think, to the delinquent spirit. They have the ability to catch up with trouble. They have the innate skill to sniff the wind and discover which direction sin is traveling and and find it, and with both feet, chase it down. They are not discovered by evil. They long for evil. They pursue evil. They live for evil. They give their business card to evil. They leave their phone for evil. They say to evil, call me later. They are the high school seniors who have already decided as soon as they are away from home in some college somewhere, they will run to evil, and I've got about five months left, and I can't wait. These are the, the businessmen whose flight touches down in a distant city and his feet are anxious to get into a, a good search for sin. God hates the sound of feet running. He loves the sound of feet running toward him as prodigals race home. Solomon informs us that the Lord also hates the dishonest spirit. Look at verse 19. The Lord hates a false witness who breathes out lies. Just part of his inhale and exhale. He wrote in Proverbs 19.22, it is better to be a poor man than a liar. There's a good text for you as you enter the business world tomorrow. It's better for you to lose that contract because you tell the truth than gain the contract because you've lied or you've hedged or you've covered. Proverbs 26 verse 28 is where Solomon writes, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. See, they're both not telling the truth, by the way. The liar and the flatterer ruin lives. In fact, it will be Solomon's own son, Rehoboam. If you go to the record of the kings and you study the record of Rehoboam, you discover that as soon as he mounts the throne, he has young counselors that advise him to be rather uh, deceptive and selfish. And he follows their advice and they flatter him and they say, you are Rehoboam. I mean, you are so much greater than your father, Solomon. Show your strength. Show your power. Tell everybody, you're king. And they ruined his life. He would lose the throne. The implication, by the way, of verse 19 here in Proverbs chapter 6 is, is a person who's called to take the witness stand and deliver true testimony. And the one who doesn't 
brings dishonor upon the accused, right? He is literally performing an act hated by God. More specifically, perjury is in mind. This led, of course, to the tradition in the Western world where witnesses will place their hands upon the Bible before they enter the witness stand and they promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth, so help me God. And they're dropping the so help me God part. That tradition is going away. But the principle remains. Listen, the believer is to always tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Think of it this way. The Christian is always under oath. We are always under oath to tell the truth. So the Lord hates the disdainful spirit, the deceitful spirit, the destructive spirit, the depraved spirit, the delinquent spirit, the dishonest spirit, and finally, the Lord hates the divisive spirit. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19 concludes, the Lord hates one who sows discord among brothers, among the brethren. He hates anyone and anything that will divide his people. Of course, in the New Testament, this would be a reference to the assembly or the church, those who will separate uh, the saints. It's interesting when you think about the fact that we can either sow the seeds that bring a harvest of blessings, Psalm 126, verse 6, or we can sow slander, which brings a harvest of bitter hurt. Now, if God hates these seven acts of sin then that would mean he loves the opposite, right? So let's turn them around quickly. From the deadly seven sins to the delightful seven acts. Instead of a haughty spirit then, he loves a humble spirit. And we're going to have opportunities first thing tomorrow morning, you know, to demonstrate this. How are you going to treat someone in your family? How are you going to treat someone in your classroom? your church, your job, on the bus tomorrow morning. Will you look down at them or will you look out for them? Instead of a haughty spirit, demonstrate a humble spirit. Number two, instead of lying speech, pursue legitimate speech. Tell the truth. Number three, instead of hands that harm, develop hands that help. Number four, instead of a heart that plans wicked deeds, develop a heart that plans wholesome deeds. Make a list, okay? Make a list when you have an opportunity. If you can come up with things that that we know that God would despise or, or hate, abhor, think of things that you can do to, to be wholesome in your deeds. Number five. Instead of racing toward perversion, run for the prize. Paul calls it the prize of the high calling, which we have in in Christ Jesus. Number six, instead of lying under oath, live under oath. Remember, we are all called witnesses, aren't we? We live on the witness stand. And with our lips, we declare those things that either honor Christ or dishonor him. We live under oath, so consider that as you begin your week. 
Number seven, instead of sowing bitterness and disunity, sow seeds of blessing and unity. And so mirror the model of Christ, who was the perfect opposite of all of these seven terrible things. Couldn't help but think of it as I studied this paragraph. Think of it, Christ was the model of humility. He was the epitome of truth and truthfulness. His hands healed and helped and embraced. His heart was pure and and sinless. His feet walked among us, eventually allowing the piercing nails to silence him, but only for just a moment. Everything he said was true about everybody he ever spoke of. And we have been unified by him around this truth into one family. This is the divine physician's report. I recommend that we together accept the facts and don't argue with the x-rays or the, the lab report. Fill the prescription. Take your medicine. Let's accept the diagnosis and with gratitude for God's grace and And goodness, have passion like the Apostle Paul to be pleasing to Christ. So let's deal with this list of seven and yield to our Lord and to his spirit. Our eyes, our mouths, our hands, our hearts, and our feet. Father, thank you for this examination by our divine physician through his word. Your word does speak the truth about us, and this list is places where you want us to stop and think and consider. And I'm convinced, Father, that every one of us in this auditorium have found ourselves somewhere, either to stop something or perhaps begin something, to say something or perhaps stop saying anything, to look at people with Humility and a desire to help rather than a haughty, better than others spirit. Help us to tell the truth as we live under oath on the witness stand, ultimately declaring what we believe about you. And then may our witness match our feet and the direction we walk and the things we run after. Take our lives. We dedicate them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 